Well, welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, our podcast series. Uh, it's a joint venture of Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. My special guest for this podcast is Frank N. Wilner, Railway Age's longtime Capitol Hill contributing editor. We're going to talk about the current labor situation, rail labor situation in, in the United States. Frank has unique experience. He's the only person, really, who has seen it from all sides, from the labor side, from the management side, from the regulatory side, and from the journalism side. Frank, uh, welcome. Uh, very glad to, uh, to have you join us. Thank you. Uh, Bill, when we look at issues as journalists, we really try to peel back all of the feelings and look just for the facts. And it's quite different than when we are either on the management side or the labor side, and we have a position that we are seeking to advocate. Let's try to do this uh, this today. Well, Frank, okay. you uh, you literally wrote the book on labor, uh, the, the Railway uh, Labor Act, published by Simmons Boardman Books. Uh, so you, you have a lot of experience in, uh, in this area. So right now, we are getting into national bargaining. Uh, and this is going to be rather contentious, I think, with everything that's been going on. What, what are the main issues now that the, uh, that the parties, labor and management, are looking at? First, let's make clear that the Railway Labor Act is quite different from labor law affecting all other industries in the United States because under the Railway Labor Act, contracts never expire. They go on until they are amended, which means that if the two sides cannot agree, there is not an end period where there is a strike or a lockout. And that's always important to understand, especially uh, for shippers, uh, that we are not facing a deadline date when the railroads may shut down. The current national contracts, and we're talking about all of the major class one railroads and many of the majors, it's uh, uh, regionals as well, began talks toward amending the contracts on the 1st of January. Typically, these talks do not go quickly because there are no deadlines. The two sides periodically meet and they spar and there's a lot of politicalization because they are looking more at an end game than they are at a time clock. There are two issues that have these sides very far apart this round of bargaining. One, as the operating crafts want to maintain two-person crews, even though the technology that they fought for for so many years, positive train control, is a new technology that is uh, making it possible to operate some trains, not all trains, with a single person. That has become and will remain a contentious issue. In fact, uh, there are court cases ongoing right now as to whether the issue can be negotiated on a national basis or whether it has to be negotiated railroad by railroad. And the other significant issue that is separating the sides, the cost to every employer has absolutely soared in recent years. So there are many reasons for it, but the bottom line is that it is expensive and Rail workers are probably paying the lowest amount that any worker is paying under a company-provided health care uh, policy. And those costs are probably going to soar in the next couple of years because of this novel coronavirus. So how much the employees are going to contribute and how much the carriers are going to contribute 
is going to stay a contentious issue. The talks have pretty much stopped right now because of the virus. They are not able to sit down in the same uh, room for obvious reasons. And Rail Labor has chosen not to do this via video conferencing. Why? My personal take is that they want to see where the election is going in November. And the reason for that is we go back to the Railway Labor Act. It has no expiration date. At some point, if the two sides cannot reach a voluntary settlement, the federal government gets involved through the National Mediation Board. That board right now is under Republican control. And I think everybody can agree that the two Republicans that are the majority on the National Mediation Board are not labor friendly. The National Mediation Board recommends arbitrators, if the two sides cannot get together, who form a presidential emergency board. The White House names the arbitrators at the recommendation of the National Mediation Board, and the presidential emergency board then makes non-binding recommendations based on presentations that are made to it by carriers and labor. If this PEB is made up of not friendly arbitrators. It's obvious that the rail rail labor uh, interests are not well taken care of. So if Donald Trump remains the president, labor has got to take a different strategy than if Joe Biden becomes the president. And so right now, labor wants to wait and see where politics are going come November, under the assumption that if the talks break down and a presidential emergency board is recommended, it's appointed to make recommendations, a Republican-appointed PEB will be less friendly. So I don't expect any progress between now and certainly the fall. And then we'd have to reassess where things are after the uh, the election. So is it reasonable to say that if we were not in this in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, the timing would still be about the same? We would uh, the labor would be looking to to see how the presidential election turns out in November. Absolutely, uh, the novel coronavirus is probably an excuse not to hold the video conferencing and to. Uh, and to sit and, and bide time. Otherwise, they would probably meet at uh, uh, periodic uh, times and uh, discuss the issues, but not reach any kind of a uh, conclusion. We've seen this in the past. These negotiations have a history of sometimes going for two, three, even uh, even four years. There are exceptions where there have been agreements more quickly But this is going to be that very contentious round because of the crew size issue and healthcare uh, cost sharing. That said, Bill, let's look at what we've got in terms of a railroad industry. Without a doubt, it is the most extensive, mostly unsupervised shop floor in the world. It extends coast to coast. It's an expensive, complex machine, largely unsupervised. It's much like a symphony orchestra. All of the parts have to operate in sync, and that requires coordination. It requires high degrees of morale, and sometimes it breaks down because management, while it isn't a popularity contest, doesn't have to be an unpopularity contest. 
And labor very often sees the demands of uh, management as an unpopularity contest. They don't see human resources as human resources, but rather a supply office where the employees are treated as number two Ticonderoga pencils, uh, available uh, for use and available to be discarded. There are two issues right now that labor uh, is uh, very cognizant of. Last August, the Business Roundtable with almost 200 large company employers signed a written statement that they're no longer running their companies for the benefit solely of shareholders, but also for workers and uh, and communities. Lance Fritz of Union Pacific was the only major railroad president to sign that statement. When 200 major corporations uh, sign such a statement and only Union Pacific signs it, I think there is a legitimate question on the part of, uh, of labor. Uh, what is going on? doesn't mean that these employers are employers are uh, are wrong it doesn't mean that they're anti-labor it's a matter of optics and when you're sitting at the negotiating table trying to reach mutual agreements and labor knows that whatever it uh, signs has to be taken back to the membership for ratification if the members are not feeling very warm toward the carrier they're more likely to reject the agreement in labor negotiations it's through a different organization bill it's through the national railway labor conference and that has a uh, a chairman who is not from any of the uh, any of the railroads and uh, it's interesting there because it is a new chief negotiator that, uh, that just came aboard from the uh, from the airline industry and we also have a number of new uh, chief labor negotiators from the individual railroads and we have some uh, new labor union presidents so there is a lot of getting to know each other and uh, and and feeling the way at the negotiating table right now but the way that, that the carriers negotiate is the chairman uh speaks on behalf of uh, all of the carriers but the carrier representatives get together and uh, they collegially decide exactly where they want to go in these negotiations. So no single railroad really is uh, is in charge, but certainly the all of the class ones together make mm -hmm. these determinations. Okay. I wanted to ask you about the uh, Federal Railroad Administration emergency order, which uh, was instituted uh, at the behest, really, of, of the AAR and the uh, Shortline Association, as well as APTA for the uh, the commuter railroads that come under the major unions, their, their employees, uh, uh, conductors and trainmen, uh, other employees. Do you think the emergency order could, in the long term, have an effect on, uh, on contract talks? Labor is not happy with these waivers, uh, but the simple answer, and labor doesn't like this answer, is that the Federal Railroad Administration is not an employment agency. The concern over who is called back to work, who is furloughed, is between labor and the carriers, not the, uh, not the FRA. That's another contentious issue, obviously. An engineer today earns about $120,000 a year, a conductor about $100,000 a year. There are a number of layers uh, of protection for them. If they don't have a regular assignment, they go on to an extra board. And below that extra board is an auxiliary board that a lot of these operating employees only work a couple of days a week, but their health care benefits are, are preserved. 
we're seeing a tremendous double-digit drop-off in uh, in freight on the railroads today. No corporation can really be expected to retain every one of its employees, but I think the railroads are probably retaining uh, far more employees on a percentage basis than many other large uh, large corporations. It's a matter of optics. Uh, let's take Union Pacific, for example. I, I just mentioned that Lance Fritz was the only one that signed this uh, business roundtable letter uh, saying that they're going to uh, put employees uh, at least on the same level as uh, as stockholders. And yet the workers see that in the past five years, Union Pacific spent $25 billion repurchasing its own stock and sent another $11 billion to Wall Street in dividends. That's $36 billion that Union Pacific sent to Wall Street. Now you can argue that the company belongs to the stockholders and that the uh, workers have no more of a claim on those assets than uh, they are paid or that their contract uh, can provide for them uh, being paid. But again, it comes down to the optics. The carriers say, look, we're paying you $120,000 a year if you're an engineer. Uh, we're spending probably uh, twelve, thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars a month just for your health care, and you're only paying a, a small percentage of that. You're in the top five percent, or maybe even better, in terms of compensation of the workforce nationwide. You've said many times that uh, labor and management sometimes appear to talk past each other. What do you exactly mean by that? And what what are the root causes of of that? The carriers certainly are upset with the Federal Employers Liability Act. The labor organizations have some very cozy relationships with a uh, small group of uh, attorneys that bring suits uh, for injuries against the carriers. And it's about a billion dollars in payouts every single year. It really rankles the, uh, the carriers that they are, uh, are sued rather than uh, labor agreeing to be under a uh, state workers' compensation no-fault uh, program, as are all, uh, all other workers. Obviously, crew size is the other issue. Technology. The word sabotage comes from the word sabot, French word, And it goes back to when shoemakers threw their sabots, their shoes, wooden shoes, into the machines to uh, try to stop machines from taking jobs. We've been seeing that go on now for a couple of hundred years. I don't think there's ever been an instance where labor has been able to stop technology and preserve a job. The smartest of the labor organizations reach an accommodation whereby they increase their uh, their training. Labor has never stopped new technology. They've made accommodations with it. We've seen flagmen disappear. We've seen telegraphers uh, disappear. Firemen, which uh, actually probably lasted longer than the uh, technology at the time, was replacing. I remember well, going back more than 20 years, the, uh, the, the battle over remote control in a yard and, and the, the battle uh, be- between, the at the time, the UTU and the BLET. They were fighting for who was going to have control of that, and, I th- and it was the UTU. The UTU, uh, at least from my, my perspective, uh, has been the most willing to work with the carriers to embrace the technology. Capitalism, and that is the best of uh, all systems, or 
the worst of all systems, except for all of the others, take your, take your choice, but it's an evolutionary system, which involves creative destruction. At the turn of the 20th century, 1900, there were more than 2 million railroad workers. We're down to under 200,000 today. Technology has replaced uh, these jobs, but also created new opportunities. The United Transportation Union, which is now Smart TD, understood this when remote control yard operations came along. Could have fought it, it was going to lose, but instead it said, we want to lead the change in technology rather than follow it. And they did it by negotiating an agreement where they preserved jobs and increased the pay of those that were uh, going to operate the technology. A couple of years ago, again on Smart TD, one of the general committees on BNSF said, look, we know we can't stop one-person crews. Maybe we can delay it, but we're not going to be able to stop it. BNSF said, look, if you let us go with some pilot projects and give this a try, we will give income protection for the rest of the careers of every affected conductor. Now, you tell me what worker in the United States or anywhere in the globe would not want a promise that they and their families are going to be protected on the same income they earned yesterday right up until they retire even if there is no job to go to. That was the offer that was made by BNSF. It was rejected at the request of the union leadership. And let's take a moment to probe that. Why would an individual want to give up a lifetime income protection in order to go to a one-person job? Because look, the worst that could happen to them is they'd be told to sit home and they would continue to, uh, to collect their pay although there'd probably be another job found, uh, found for them. The important point is that their income and their health care benefits uh, would continue. Well, some of the uh, employees at the time weren't so sure about positive train control. They were a little concerned about the safety. But in talking to a lot of these operating people today, they're seeing that PTC can, in fact, operate the trains safely. And they're saying, you know, if we had another chance at this agreement, we would vote for it because it's definitely in our benefit. So why did the labor union encourage them not to vote for it? Bill, I maintain that there is a third party at the negotiating table. And that third party is the labor union, which has a different interest than the employee. The size, the scope of rail labor unions has not changed as the number of employees have gone down. The unions have been fighting to preserve dues because they have not slimmed down as the carriers have slimmed down. There have been recommendations to combine some of these uh, legislative offices in these smaller states into regional offices, combine some of these general committees, uh, reduce the number of union officers on the payroll. That hasn't been done. A result has been financial difficulty for a number of the rail unions. They could have merged with each other. They would certainly be a more powerful force. United Auto Workers is a very powerful force, a single union representing multiple crafts negotiating with numerous auto companies. But instead, 
rail labor rejected merging among themselves to create an all-powerful union and literally became the tail of other union organizations. The Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers is now part of the, uh, the Teamsters. It's the tail of the Teamsters. The former United Transportation Union is now part of a much larger sheet metal organization. When you put these two organizations together, the rail portion and the non-rail portion, obviously the interests of a larger group of employees is going to go to the, uh, to the forefront. So these organizations have a self-interest that is somewhat and maybe significantly different than the employees. Can we change it? No. That's just a fact that uh, has to be observed. And it's one of the things that is making uh, negotiations difficult at the, uh, at the bargaining table. So if the employees, for example, of the uh, smart TD, the conductors, are prepared to vote again and accept lifetime income protection because they are reasonably certain that train safety is not going to be an issue given positive train control and that uh, one-person crews would probably not be utilized on uh, hazmat trains. After all, nobody has a greater interest in safety than the railroad that has to pay the claims and face the, uh, the political and, uh, and legal fallout of an accident. If they feel that way, is their union going to allow them to uh, vote again or make a, uh, an agreement of pilot projects? That's one of the things at the negotiating table that we are going to watch. But I mention this because this is the driving force for the Smart TD, the conductors union, and to some extent, the uh, Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen. They are very concerned about their own union treasuries uh, and probably less concerned um, about the lifetime income protection. It's a cruel thing to say. But uh, that's the way I read between the lines, Bill. Well, I would, I would think you're spot on here, Frank. And with PTC 1.0, by the end of the year, we're going to be fully implemented. Uh, there might be a couple of stragglers but on the commuter rail side, but it's going to be fully implemented. And the carriers and the suppliers are already well at work with systems that can operate a train semi-autonomously. Uh, I've been on one of these trains on, at, uh, at the TTCI. There was an engineer at the controls, but the engineer was a caretaker. The train ran itself safely. And as you said, this sort of technology, uh, running a train semi-autonomously, it doesn't apply to all operations, of course, but this is where the industry is headed. Artificial intelligence being utilized for inspection, wayside detectors, machine learning. This, this stuff is increasing exponentially. The railroads have to adopt this technology if they're going to stay viable. I would think that the unions would have to embrace this as well. Bill, the science is there. What the labor unions have advanced are anecdotes anecdotal evidence as to why you uh, should have a second person in the cab. Yet those who perform the science, the National Transportation Safety Board has never advocated maintaining a two-person crew. Los Angeles Metrolink actually found that train operation was safer with a single uh, person in the cab rather than uh, rather than two. The science is there. It's, it's, it's almost as if Dr. Fauci is uh, preaching science and we have politicians saying, well, we want to open, uh, open the country. Who are you going to, uh, 
going to believe. Mm -hmm. You can't ignore the science. And to take it a step further, it would really be nice if both carriers and labor would accept the fact that the enemy of carriers is not labor, the enemy of labor is not carriers, if they can get together and recognize that the real enemy today are non-union owner operators moving trailers and containers around the country in competition with the railroads. Coal is dead, Bill. That bedrock traffic is going to continue to decline. Intermodal is probably the future of railroads, and it's one of the tightest margin lines of business that the railroads have. Both labor and management are going to have to get together to figure out how to beat the trucker here, and it's not going to be through two-person crews. And if these wages of $120,000 for an engineer and $100,000 for a conductor and I think that they are very well worth it, given the uh, responsibility that these people have uh, for operating a, uh, a train. But if the money is going to be available to pay these salaries and to pay these benefits that are greater than anywhere else in American society, then the railroad is going to have to turn a profit. And to turn a profit, it's going to be, have to be competitive with trucks that are operated by non-union owner-operators, many of whom have no health care benefits and are uh, earning probably half or even less than, uh, than the rail workers. That's the economics of the situation. And we learn to live with those economics. The best thing we can do is learn to manage them. You know, one thing I, I wanted I wanted to point out, I think it'd be a good note to close on, Frank, is the the effort and the dedication that the workers, uh, the railroad workers, have been have been showing in the midst of this pandemic. They're proud of their jobs. They're doing their jobs. Uh, they're they're looking out for each other. Uh, they're looking out for themselves, and I think that's a real testament to. Uh, to them. And uh, that's why it's kind of, um, to me, it's disappointing to see when uh, the, the leadership of, of uh, at least a couple of the unions are really hammering the, the carriers and the FRA. It just doesn't make any sense. They're, I don't think they're representing how the, how the workers, uh, the people that they're supposed to be looking out for, feel. Over the last couple of weeks, I've, I've probably spoken to uh, two dozen um, engineers, a couple of signalmen, and uh, and, and and others, many of them uh, called me or emailed me, uh, just uh, wanting to be uh, anonymous. But all are given giving very high marks to the uh, to the carriers. One of the things you have to question is: it, Would this be a good time for some pilot projects in terms of one person crews, so that two people are not sitting in the cab? I was told by an engineer uh, just the other day they can maintain the six feet of, uh, of distance in the cab. But if one has to go uh, to, the, uh, to the toilet in the locomotive, there goes the six feet of separation. And the fact is you can't uh, open the windows of the, uh, of the cab. So they are breathing the same air within the, uh, within the cab. Uh, and they are not uh, paired with the same uh, crew member each, uh, each turn because the randomness of the job assignments, an engineer could very well or most likely has a different uh, conductor uh, each turn that they are, are making. So there would be an opportunity of a pilot project until this uh, 
COVID-19 um, epidemic is, uh, is over, nothing permanent, but by gosh, let's see what uh, the evidence is of operating some of these trains with one person. Let's stop with this uh, anecdotal evidence and let's start looking at, uh, at science. Now is the time to do it because we really don't know how long this pandemic is going to last. If you look at train engine service, you know, they are gone 10 to 15 nights uh, out of the month if they're on regular service. Very often, well, they are supposed to have a window of as many as 12 hours uh, in advance before they are, are called. Various events can occur where they are suddenly called with only two or three hours uh, hours notice. Uh, unlike uh, other workers, uh, they don't have paid sick days. It's not an easy job being a locomotive engineer or a conductor. One can argue they are paid for it, but their family lives take an awful hit. And uh, right now, each of them is out taking quite a chance. They can't work from home. They can't hole up in the, uh, in the house. They're out there. They d definitely deserve the respect of the employer and everybody that, uh, that views the uh, railroad industry. Well, Frank, thank you so much. That's a great, uh, that's a great note to, uh, to close on. Close it out with that uh, famous quotation from the legendary Ed Ball, who uh, ran far to East Coast Railway um, a couple of generations ago. Confusion to the enemy. But let's agree that the enemy is the trucker, not labor, not the carriers. 